Epilogue of the Forgotten Planet by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The survey ship Tethys made the first landing on the Forgotten Planet, and the Orana followed, and some centuries later the Ludrid. Then the planet was forgotten until the Wapiti arrived. The arrival of the Wapiti was as much an accident as the loss of the punched card which caused the planet to be overlooked for some thousands of years. Somebody had noticed that the sun around which it circled was of a type which usually has useful planets, but there was no record that it had ever been visited. So a request to the sportsmen on the Wapiti had caused them to turn aside. They considered, anyhow, that it would be interesting to land on a brand new world or two. They considered it fascinating to find human beings there before them. But they could not understand the use of such primitive weapons or garments of such barbaric splendor. They had trouble, too, because in forty-odd generations the speech of the universe had changed, while Burl and Saya spoke a very archaic language indeed. But there was an educator on the Wapiti. It was quite standard apparatus, simply basic education for a human child, so that one's school years could be begun with a backlog of correct speech and reading, with the practical facts of mathematics, sanitation, and the general information that any human being anywhere needs to know. Children use it before they start school, and they absorb its information quite painlessly. It is rare that an adult needs it, but Burl and Saya did. Burl was politely invited to wear the headset, and he politely obliged. He found himself equipped with a new language and what seemed to him an astonishing amount of information. Among the information was the item that he was going to have as an adult a severe headache, which he did. Also included was the fact that making of records for such educators was so laborious a process that it took generations to compile one master record for the instruments. Burl, with a splitting headache, nevertheless, urged Saya to join him in getting an education, and she did, and thereafter they were able to converse with a sportsman on the Wapiti, comfortably enough, except for their headaches. And all this led to extremely satisfactory arrangements. Sportsmen could not but be enthusiastic about the hunting of giant insects with dogs and spears. The sportsmen on the Wapiti wanted some kind of sport. Burl's fellow tribesmen were delighted to oblige, though they had not quite the zest of Burl. They had to acquire educations in their turn, so they could talk to their new hunting companions. But the hunting was magnificent. The Wapiti abandoned its original plans and settled down for a stay. Presently, Burl's casual talk of the lowlands produced results. An atmosphere flyer came out of the ship's storage compartments, and through the educator, Burl was now a civilized man. He had not the specialized later information of his guests, but he had knowledge that they could not dream of, and which it would take much of a century to put in recordable form for an educator. So an atmosphere flyer went down into the lowlands 
through the cloud banks. There were three men on board. They had good hunting, magnificent hunting. Even more importantly, they found another cluster of human beings who lived as fugitives among the insect giants. They brought them to the plateau a few at a time. Sportsmen stayed in the lowlands with modern weapons, hunting enthusiastically while the transfer took place. In all, the Wapiti stayed two months Earth's time. When it left, its sportsmen had such trophies as would make them envied of all other hunters in the three-star clusters. They left behind weapons and atmosphere flyers and their library and tools. But they took with them enthusiasm for the sport on the once-forgotten planet and rather warm feelings of friendship for Burl. They sent their friends back. The next ship to come in found a small city on the plateau with a population of three hundred souls, all civilized by educator. Naturally, they had no trouble building civilized dwellings or practicing sanitation or developing a neatly adapted culture pattern for their particular environment. This second ship brought more weapons and flyers and news from the first party about commercial demand for the incredibly luxurious moth fur to be found only on one planet in all the galaxy. The fourth ship to land on the plateau was a trading ship anxious to load such furs for recklessly bidding merchants in a dozen interplanetary marts. There were then nearly a thousand people living on the plateau. They had a natural monopoly, not of moth fur and butterfly wing fabric, and panels of iridescent chitin for luxurious decoration, but of the strictly practical and detailed knowledge of insect habits which made it possible to obtain them. Off-planet visitors who tried to hunt without local knowledge did not come back from the lowlands. In time, Burl firmly enacted a planetary law which forbade the inexperience to go below the cloud layer. Because, of course, a government had to be formed for the planet, but men with the basic education of citizens everywhere did not fumble it. They had a job to do, which was more important than anybody's vanity. It was a job which gave deep and abiding satisfaction. When naked, trembling folk were found in the mushroom jungles and brought to the plateau, they had one instant feverish desire as soon as they got over the headache from the educator. They wanted to go back to the lowlands. It was profitable, to be sure, but it was even more of a satisfaction to hunt and kill the monsters that had hunted and killed men for so long. It felt good, too, to find other humans and bring them out to sunshine. So nowadays the forgotten planet has ceased to be forgotten. It is hardly necessary to name it, because its name is known throughout all the galaxy. Its population is not large so far, but it is an interesting place to live in. In the popular mind, it is the most glamorous of all possible worlds, and for easily understandable reasons. The inhabitants of its capital city wear moth fur garments and butterfly wing cloaks for the benefit of their fellows in the lowlands. There is no day but flyers take off and dive down into the mists. When human hunters are in the lowlands, 
they dress as the lowlanders they used to be, so that lowlanders may spy them and will be sure that they are men and friends, and come to them to be raised to proper dignity above the insects. It is not unusual for a man to be brought up to sunshine and have a session with the educator and be flying his own assigned atmosphere flyer within a week, diving back above what used to be the place where he was hunted, but where he has become the hunter. It was a very pleasant arrangement. The search for more humans in the lowlands is a prosperous business, even when it is unsuccessful. The wings of the white morpho butterflies bring the highest prices, but even a common swallowtail is riches, and the fur of caterpillars, duly processed, goes into the holds of the planet-owned spaceline ships with the care given elsewhere to platinum and diamonds. And also, it is good sport. The planet is a sportsman's paradise. There are not too many visitors. Nobody may go hunting without an experienced host. And off-planet sportsmen tend to feel somewhat queasy after a session, as guests of the folk who have made Burl their planet president. Visitors are not so much alarmed at fighting flying beetles in mid-air, even though the beetles may compare with a hunter's craft in size and are terrifically tenacious of life. The thing that appalls strangers is the insistence of Burl's fellow citizens, no longer only tribesmen, upon fighting spiders on the ground. With their memories, they like it that way. It is more satisfactory. Not long ago, the planet president of Sumor Eleven was Burl's guest for a hunt. Sumor Eleven is a highly civilized planet, and life there has become tame. Its president is an ardent hunter. He liked Burl, who was still all hard muscle, despite his graying hair. He and Saya have a very comfortable dwelling. Now that their children are grown, they have room in it, even for a planet president, if he comes as a sportsman guest. The planet president of Sumor Eleven even liked the informal atmosphere of a house where pleasantly self-possessed dogs curl up comfortably on rugs of emperor moth down that elsewhere are beyond price. But the president of Sumor Eleven was embarrassed on his visit. He and Burl are both hunters, and they are highly congenial. But the president of Sumor Eleven was upset on his last flight to the lowlands. Burl got out of the atmosphere flyer alone, and for pure deep personal satisfaction, he fought a mastodon-sized wolf spider with nothing but a spear. He killed the creature, of course, but the president of Sumor Eleven was embarrassed. He wouldn't have dared try it. He felt that, however, sporting it might be, it was too risky a thing for a planet president to do. But Saya took it for granted. End of Epilogue Recording by Richard Kilmer Rio Medina, Texas. End of The Forgotten Planet by Murray Leinster.